Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where our current mayor and a couple of former mayors just came out in favor of marijuana decriminalization. Woo-hoo! So there Woo. may be some hope for this city yet. Should we rename it New Amsterdam? <laughs> With all the Dutch folk? You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. Teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello. And darling of the masses, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello, masses. Coming up in today's show, we'll take a brief break from our developmental psych of religion miniseries because there was just so many other stories we wanted to get to. Don't worry, we'll pick it up next time. But this time, we've got God Things Like You on gay families, some polyatheism, a shit list item, but first, some very sad news regarding violence around the world. We'll start off with the Muslim world. There has been incidences of violence in several countries, all because of a movie that was posted on YouTube. Right, Jeremy? Well, yes, that's the conventional wisdom, that this is a response to a film. The trailer was posted on YouTube, right? The name of the movie was the called The Innocence of the Muslims. Nobody knows if there's actually a film that goes with the trailer. <laughs> uh, nobody's been able to find this film, but apparently mm-hmm. the trailer was uh, translated into Arabic. And Have you seen featured. the trailer, by the way? No, I haven't watched I, it. I watched it. It is, to call it a, a B-movie is um, giving it far too much praise. Hmm. It is, I, I mean, it's the worst trailer ever. It's it's like three short scenes that I think they're trying to be funny, but they're not funny, and it's shot all on, like, uh, green screen with actors wearing literally, like, towels on Dave their is heads. a very severe critic. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's really terrible. <laughs> you know the clips they played when I heard the dialogue? It reminded me of when they, on Boogie Nights, when they're trying to... Sound like a porn movie dialogue, yes. and so Julianne would be like, "Ah, you appear to be qualified." And it was like that, <laughs> yes, that's the yes. level of acting. And, and actually, um, total side note: one of the people who may have been the director of this film, and that's still in question, is a uh, porn director yeah, as well. Softcore porn, uh, which film you can director. tell by the level of uh, production and acting. I'm here to deliver a pizza, yes. so yes. I've heard. Yes. Uh, but uh, again, there's so many rumors about this uh, alleged director of the film mm-hmm. that it's hard to know uh, what right now is just internet rumor and what yeah. is actually confirmed fact but yeah I'd read that too uh, yeah that supposedly was what set off a lot of these protests I, I say supposedly because we'll get to other possible motivations mm-hmm. in a moment of course there were the attacks in Libya 
the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, where four were killed, including uh, Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens, who actually aided the Arab Spring effort quite mm-hmm. a bit in the beginning. So, yeah. Also, uh, the walls were breached of the U.S. embassy in Cairo, flags burned, uh, people raised up a black Islamist flag with the Muslim profession of faith on it. Uh, in Tunisia, there's been violence. In Sudan, this was weird, but it happened along with some of the... <laughs> apparently, in Sudan, they tried to get into the American embassy, but the security was too good. So mm-hmm. they went and destroyed, uh, started setting fire to the German embassy instead. Because it was easier? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Look, we don't like Americans any more than you do. <laughs> uh, there were reports of uh, anti-Muslim graffiti on mosques in Berlin. Mm-hmm. In Tripoli, Lebanon, there were protesters killed, 25 people wounded, 18 of them police, uh, and a KFC in an Arby's restaurant was set fire to. I understand that part. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the rest seems unjustified. It's no Chick fil A, but yeah. Yeah. It's no pollos or manos, but <laughs> that's what they need. Uh, Israel had to set down a, a protest of 400. Palestinians. Uh, there were also protests in Malaysia, in Indonesia, and India. Kashmir probably saw the largest group of protesters, 15,000 people gathered to protest the video, uh, but there was no reports of any kind of uh, violence or casualties from those. That's so, the right kind of protest. Right. Yeah, pretty yeah. big worldwide protest. Of course, some of it starting on September 11th, mm-hmm. uh, the, the anniversary of the attacks. Which has got people wondering, you know, to what degree were these things planned and coordinated beforehand? Right. Uh, and is this video, since it's such an obscure movie, I mean, no, virtually no one knew about it over here right. until this blew up into a worldwide issue. And there was a time delay where it was actually out a while earlier, and only then after the conservative Islamists had mm-hmm. a version of that on their website or on their posted on YouTube, did, did the whole thing get blown up? Uh, so they had actually, the, the the video had existed for a while and just nobody cared, which is, you know. Right, yeah. As well, they shouldn't have. It's because, it, I mean, it's, it's level. It's not, we're not talking about a film released by a major U.S. studio that, you know, clearly a majority of people in the United States want to make fun of Mohammed um, because they're going to go see this movie. This is nothing. I mean, they, they could have shot it in their backyard and posted it. I've done more offensive stuff on Facebook than uh, <laughs> yes, than this we've movie. Seen. Yes. <laughs> well, that's why some are wondering. Uh, for example, the Christian Science Monitor in its article, "Libya Attack Graphically Marks Rise of Fundamentalist Muslims." Some are wondering if people have been behind the scenes kind of ramping things up and using this video as an excuse or something to kind of rally mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. behind their cause. Uh, the Christian Science Monitor article points out the involvement of the Salafi movement, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Egypt. And also, Al-Qaeda seems to be connected to many of these attacks and is actually taking credit for some of them. Yeah, Al-Qaeda has been praising the the attacks. Fwanz Gurgis, a Middle East specialist at the London School of Economics, describing the Salafi movement as extremely hyper, extremely anti-American, Extremely blinded by the sunshine of open political atmosphere, the Salafis are now the wild card in Arab and Muslim politics in Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. And in Syria, they are becoming a major factor in the anti-regime equation. 
Hours before these protests on September 11th, an al-Qaeda leader released a video calling for revenge for the deaths of senior Libyan member of al-Qaeda, Abu Yahya al-Libi, saying, his blood is calling, urging and inciting you to fight and kill the crusaders. And uh, Fawaz Gurji says, I would argue that a great deal of planning went into the Libya attack. Mm -hmm. They fired multiple missiles into the consulate. They are well known for their anti-American views. And so he believes, yes, it's, it was probably some It did not agitating. appear like a spontaneous... Um, right, it wasn't reactionary. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, if you wanted to, if you wanted to attack Americans... Uh, and what would be a better pretext than to sort of say, hey, we can get a crowd, they gather outside there, infiltrate the crowd, and exactly. then, you know, whatever, it's so religion in this case, the, the religiosity of the, or anti-religiosity of the video is a good pretext. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The Christian Science Monitor uh, points out how these tactics are already looking like they're failing. We see the media images of these attacks and people burning American flags and chanting death to America and all this, but we don't get a sense of what what size or what proportion of the society would actually support that. And internally, uh, there's been a lot of a lot of people upset yes. that these that these protests are going on, that they're turning violent. Some are looking at that optimistically as a sign that these these tactics, while very visible, uh, might might further their loss of support right, in these right, nations. And I think there are actually uh, some Muslims out there, including in countries like Libya, that understand that when their religion is criticized, acting out violently in response to that is kind of dumb. It just confirms it, you know, it's like, yeah. it's absurd saying we're not a violent religion, and if you say we are, we're going to be violent. We'll cut your head off, yeah. Um, there are legitimate things to criticize about Muhammad, and uh, Muslims have the right to defend him, but when this really meaningless, nothing film is used as the the guise of this is why we're upset with the United States, they're, they're going to lose more supporters than they're going to gain with this because it's so absurd and the reaction is so overblown. There's kind of a gap, though, in the understanding of free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I think, though, and I think, you know, so I kind of have been bouncing back and forth every time I hear news stories to, you know, yeah, this, you know, the, the film was clearly provocative. You shouldn't do that. But then my free speech side would be like, but you have a right to offend people. You know, you yeah. don't have a right not to be offended. But I think when you look at polls that say, you know, most Muslims condemn these attacks or whatever, you see other polls that say things like, well, they believe in free speech, but there should be an exception for religiously offensive speech. So clearly, yeah, yeah. even among the, the peaceable man on the street sort of typical person, there does to be a, West, uh, a gap between the West and the Middle Eastern mm-hmm. world on understandings yeah, of yeah. what free speech Which is. Which that clause takes all the fun out of free speech in the first place. To illustrate this, there's uh, one of the larger Islamist groups in Kashmir. During the protests there, this gentleman said... Quote, if America is true in its claims of being against any kind of religious blasphemy, pause, what? <laughs> what what <laughs> did we claim America, that? Yeah. What? <laughs> when has that been a statement of foreign policy? Yeah. Uh, then it should lose no time in taking stern action against these enemies of humanity. And then, of course, we're calling upon some sort of... The enemies sort of, of humanity? Of the, yes, yes. The, the people who made the movie, right? That's yes. what we're talking yes. about here. And by the way... So, no, it's not, President not Obama, comprehended how right. free speech works. Uh, Obama, well, the, the Obama administration society. asked YouTube to pull the video, which I would say is 
not really something they should be doing. Um, they are asking for censorship. And again, one of my issues with the Obama administration. But YouTube has left the video up saying, no, we're not going to take this down because some people are yeah. are being – They did restrict access. Ass-ass about it. They did restrict access in accordance well, with – Well, in uh, that there's a disclaimer that you say that, that says the material may be offensive. Yeah, Click here But I mean in mind. Indonesia and – Oh, other in other countries. Google, sure. Google yeah. has a policy of following local – yeah. local countries' rules when yeah. it comes to censorship issues. So they did sure. restrict access in several different countries. So but yes, China. here in America, you can still watch it. In China, when you type in Tiananmen Square, the, this video pops up, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they've rerouted the Google thing. So. <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to find that the video had less and less to do with it than um, what the media here in the United States wanted to report initially. Right. Well... In a related news story, we see that some of these blasphemy laws, right, that are curbed at stopping free speech, Mm -hmm. especially criticism of Islam, uh, at least in Pakistan, some of these blasphemy laws are starting to uh, backfire. Yes. This is the case of Rimshah Masi. She's a young girl, 14 years old, Mm -hmm. living in Pakistan, and she has... uh, A a Christian. A Christian, yes, that's important. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been charged uh, under blasphemy laws for desecrating a Quran. Mm-hmm. Some of the experts for the defense have pointed out that, I mean, not only is she 14, mm-hmm. not only she, is she a minor, but she also probably has uh, mental disabilities as well. She isn't functioning at the full capacity of a 14-year-old. Her, hey, uh, it doesn't stop age. Texas. Why should it stop <laughs> Pakistan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a sobering mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. Rimsha's lawyer now believes there's nothing, quote, there's nothing left in the case. The prosecution has completely failed. This is from Religion News Blog, Pakistan Religious Leaders Debate Blasphemy Law. Apparently what happened was quite a few people were already upset at this case in Pakistan, <laughs> saying that it's uh, that it's it's overbearing that it's part of a campaign that's going on in this in this region in Pakistan to forcibly move the Christian population out mm-hmm. to and other head. minorities by the way that's not just Christian right. it's other Islamic minorities like sects sects within Islam yes mm-hmm. a dramatic turn in the case came when the deputy mosque leader Hafiz Zubair said that he was actually present when Rimsha's accuser contacted the local imam, the accuser brought a plastic bag that had ashes of a book burned by Rimsha, which he was claiming was the Quran, but it was just ashes. There was no way to actually verify that statement. Some of the Christian minorities there, they are like the the lowest rung, so they do things like collect trash and whatnot. So her group was like rubbish collectors, basically, and she was consolidating, you know, trash bins and things like that. Hmm. Well, what happened was the imam... brought some uh, pages from the Quran uh, from inside the mosque, Mm -hmm. tore them off, and started mixing them in with the ashes. ashes. So that you can, look, these are clearly ashes of the Quran as opposed to, you know, ashes of anything else. So this deputy Hmm. mosque leader asked, here's a quote, I asked why he was fabricating the evidence, and he said this would ensure a strong case against the girl, and it would ultimately help them in evicting the Christians from the locality. And there were actually two other witnesses to this that Mm -hmm. corroborated the claim. 
So as soon as this testimony went out, the police raided the imam's house and ended up arresting him and putting him under blasphemy charges. Right, because we now officially have three more witnesses to him desecrating the Quran than there were right. for the girl. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who supposedly saw, wasn't this a show on like the uh, the Wire or the Shield? <laughs> Except it was like cops in Baltimore. You know, oh, I see a drug user. I don't have any drugs. What's this then? Yeah, exactly. Dropping packets of coke, and they're like, that's not mine. You Planted that there, ripped from today's headlines. See, so that to, to, to make the scripts more plausible to the to the Middle Eastern world, they have to say instead of dirty cops, it's dirty imams, and instead of packets of coke, it's Quran pages. Yeah. What's this then? Imagine this imam who so wanted to have this fourteen-year-old girl prosecuted that he would actually desecrate the Quran, something which is a a yeah. huge huge sin to him and of course the greater goal of getting rid of the Christians but he so badly wanted to see this 14 year old girl go to jail that he was willing to break one of the major taboos in his culture. Well, that one sure backfired. I guess the the positive spin to all this is when we were originally talking about covering this, we were discussing, like, should we put this on the props list? Because it is a blasphemy law that ended up getting to the imam and mm-hmm. discrediting it. So it's not like this is a victory over blasphemy laws. No. This is just <laughs> blasphemy laws kind of imploding in on themselves. Yes. These blasphemy laws, but that's that's the good news to come out of this story, is now apparently there's uh, an active debate going on uh, about to what degree do these – Blasphemy laws just facilitate witch hunts. It, it's a, yeah. Yes, it's a. Um, it leads to counter accusations. Anytime yeah. you have a score to settle, you can just say the other guy blasphemed, but then he can say yeah. that you're blaspheming. And so. that's exactly it. And even looking at the statistics of who gets accused uh, under these laws, who actually goes to court, almost always poor minorities. For example, most most of them are Christians. There's other minorities like Zoroastrians in the region, but they tend to be more educated, more wealthy. Those are they're, they're a never, harder target. Yeah. And yeah. how many how many cases of Zoroastrian violations of blasphemy laws are there? Yeah. Zero. Right. Well, I'm sure they have opinions about Muslims just like everyone else there. Uh, it, it, there does seem to be an aspect of targeting the poor, the unwanted in the society. So um, if this debacle is making them debate the value of their blasphemy laws and what to do about them, uh, then that's a positive thing. We don't want to be too optimistic. Uh, The article concludes with discussion by several officials in the Pakistani government saying that they want to just minimize abuse of the Mm anti-blasphemy laws, not completely remove them. But I suppose in a uh, highly Islamic society, that is at least uh, going in the right direction. It's a step. Now, uh, speaking of targeting the wrong people – and we're getting to this story a little late because literally during the last recording, um, when we recorded our previous episode, this was happening. Um, in Wisconsin, a white supremacist walked into a Sikh temple one Sunday morning and killed six people, injuring several others, and then was himself killed by a police officer. But I wanted to talk about this briefly because um, – I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about Sikhism, um, and there's a lot of debate right now as to whether or not uh, this white supremacist who um, killed these people 
knew what Sikhs were. Um, he may have, as many others do, mistaken Sikhs for Muslims. Um, but quite frankly, I don't know that it would have mattered to him if he did know the difference, because what, ma- what matters to a white supremacist who wants to kill people is they're brown and they're not Christian, or maybe just they're brown. But I did want to talk very briefly about exactly what Sikhs are, um, because shooting up a Sikh temple is a bit like, remember a few years back when the uh, guy killed a bunch of Amish school children? Such a harmless, inoffensive religious group. Sikhism is not, in fact, um, related to Islam, except that it came as an out- outgrowth of um, Islam and Hinduism. It was founded in the city of Punjab, which is now in Pakistan, um, and it was kind of a reaction to Islam and Hinduism. They took elements from both of them. For example, it's monotheistic like Islam, but there is a system of reincarnation like Hinduism. It's a synchronistic fusion. It really is. It's fancy. Don't you mean synchronistic fusion? <laughs> uh, no one's ever made a uh, pun about Sikh before. That's kind of fine. <laughs> yeah. huh? I appreciate the compliment. But Sikhs also avoid drug use, tobacco, alcohol, any sort of vice like that. And it's interesting, too. It's a monotheistic religion, but they believe that God and creation are inseparable, that God is uh, creation, that we're all part of of God. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Well, we won't get into counter-apologetics now. This is more of an informative thing rather than um, an right. argumentative thing. But they believe in unity of all creation and equality of all humans, including both men and women, mm-hmm. which would differentiate it a bit from uh, a lot of forms of Islam right there. Um, it also rejects uh, most supernatural type things. Um, there's no proselytizing with the Sikhs because one of the big elements of Sikhism is respect for other religions and what they have to offer. They, they view it as kind of different paths to the, the same endpoint, which is, you know, it's, it's a bit fallacious, but you know what? I prefer that over right. death to the infidel. <laughs> um, Sikhs are pretty easy to identify um, just by looking at them. Uh, the men always wear turbans uh, because, in part, they do not cut their hair or their beards. Um, so they wear these um, often quite sizable turbans. Women um, often have more simple head coverings. Uh, they always have a small wooden comb in their hair. Uh, they wear a metal bracelet on their right wrist. Uh, they have special underwear, not unlike the Mormons. This is hitting a lot of Mormon things. It really is. One after the other. There are some some weird similarities. But instead of handguns, they have swords. They have swords, yes. Um, and now, uh, traditionally, they would carry a small sword or a dagger on them. Now it's a much more symbolic um, weapon. Not something you would probably actually be able to use in a fight. Um, usually from three to nine inch long uh, dagger that they keep on themselves at all time. But it's not meant to be threatening. What it is is to be used for self-defense only or to defend another innocent. And it is more than anything else now 
um, is a symbol um, as a reminder to slay the ego. So can I, can I that, a that's a very Hindu a idea right there, too. Can I suggest yeah. that's also a phallic uh, sort of well, yeah, support? That's, it's certainly that. <laughs> it's certainly that. <laughs> Although, uh, so if, if, if like you're Crocodile Dundee and you go to Punjab and you're like, that's not a knife, that's a knife, except then the <laughs> Everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Never mind. Yeah. But the three main principles of Sikhism are prayer, tithing, and uh, community service. This is not a violent group of people. This is not a threatening group. of. They're not even trying to um, take away your religion. They don't proselytize any of that. So it just – it's such a, a – Kick in the nuts is the only way I can well, describe once you're it. In a, in a Nazi metal band like the Perp was, I well, think that your exactly. idea of threatening probably is a little skewed to begin with. So. You're, yeah, exactly right. By the way, how many neo-Nazi metal bands are there? Because it seems like there are a lot of them. Every the, time, Blitzkrieg, yeah. the Panzer Corps. I thought that was mostly uh, a punk music thing. Well, I think it's. Uh, I think there's a I lot of I don't punk neo-Nazi groups right. it's, too. It's, it's yeah, really a punk you go from from skinhead. It's very close to Nazi yeah. and a lot of punks. Or every so. every time uh, uh, angry Nazi yeah, is arrested for a, uh, something, they were you know the front man for this uh, right. neo-Nazi band. Yeah, no, I was hearing. Um, I, I was listening to NPR, and, and they were just after the aftermath of that whole thing and she was talking to some somebody who's worked with uh these troubled teens in these different like punk bands and stuff and i guess it's just like this huge underground thing <laughs> where like they'll have like you know house parties or something and then like the local like anti-semitic punk band goes and plays it's just, like there's apparently what a buzz kill them Oh, you wow. remember American History X, the film, don't you? Yeah. Those parties yeah, well, are like that. Exactly, like that, yeah. So, anyway, Sikhs are a very benign religious group. Um, but let's move on to talking about a, a slightly less benign religious group, um, and that is the Unification Church, or the Moonies, as they're often referred to. I had no idea, by the way, that Neil, when Neil Armstrong died, that he was a Mooney member. Am I getting my stories confused? No, I think uh, that's... No. Um, I think a, you are inaccurate. No, of course. Uh, the yeah. Reverend Sun Young Moon has died, oh. uh, the founder and Messiah of the Unification Church. Yes, born in 1920 in a small rural town in North Korea. He has a rags-to-riches story, beginning with... Uh, Significant riches. One yes. small step for yes. men. <laughs> One giant leap. No, no, wrong guy, again. When he was 10, his family joined a Presbyterian church, and when he was 15, as the uh, as the legend of the of the church says, because mm-hmm. you know we don't really know how much of his early history is. He is found real, golden tablets in his backyard and translated them by reading them through a hat. Yeah, yeah, I'm awfully skeptical of the claim that Jesus appeared to him right. and anointed <laughs> him as God's choice to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. But that is what. Reverend Sun Young Moon believed about himself. Mm-hmm. Part of his anti-communism work was he was arrested by the and detained by the communists in North Korea. And, uh, and you can understand someone being born in North Korea in 1940 why he might hate communists. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy I, was. I'm not such a fan of communists myself. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, well, it's, I don't have a problem with communists. Well, would you rather do I mean, work on work on, go to America and succeed, or be on a nice healthy gulag where you're out in the well, fresh yeah, air? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Ayn Rand. Who had yeah, exactly. The commun- communist Russia. And, and like yeah. Ayn Rand, he was very, very anti-communist. He escaped south, and um, uh, the apparently he built a church 
supposedly with United States Army ration boxes, hmm. uh, lived in a mountainside shack and started preaching this message uh, of the Unification Church, which he would later fi- found in 1954. He published a book called The Divine Principle, mm-hmm. uh, where he lays out some of his unique beliefs of the sect one of them being the importance of marriage. Oh, the mass a lot importance of marriage. Of yes, marriage. Yes. Most people are familiar with the Moonies from these huge mass weddings. These uh, arranged weddings, by the way, where he would apparently hand-select um, husbands and wives. I can't imagine he did it for everyone because he would marry hundreds of people at one time. But well, stadiums, he couldn't hand-select all these people in these stadiums. Have you seen pictures of this? The, yeah. Le- yeah. Legendary they were, they were like, arranged How many weddings marriages. do you have at where you start a wave? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great pictures that come with this New York Times article. Yeah. yeah, they have a picture from the Madison Square Garden mass marriage in 1982. So there's over 2,000 people, couples getting married. That's just the people getting married. See, I all the it, families are out in the stands. This I, is just I find it ironic that he uh, he hates North Korea, but yet he look, his weddings look exactly like the kind of card shows they have at the North Korean stadiums where they have those little people yeah. with the cards. Doesn't it look like yeah. anybody? It does. I, I agree with you. He uh, he was the one who matched up the different couples. They used questionnaires. He was the original ChristianMingles.com. They, yeah, they gave him questionnaires and photographs, and uh, church officials would recommend which couples they thought should be together. Mm-hmm. So why the, why the mass weddings? How does this play into his theology? Well, um, part of his view is that he is the latest in the line of messiahs that mm-hmm. he is fulfilling the job that jesus failed uh jesus came to restore holiness to earth to restore god's kingdom on earth but he was crucified before he could get married and have children and That's so what dan brown said <laughs> because you know jesus was all about you know wanting to stay with your family yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah he wasn't a failed apocalyptic prophet or anything yeah. And Reverend Moon also included in his list of, of past messiahs, not only Jesus, but I believe Muhammad and Buddha were also messiahs. It's all uh, leading messiahs. up to him. Yeah. It's a linear progress. The goal of these uh, marriages, then, is to produce a race of sinless humans. Ooh. Uh, How's that so working? Apparently, Moon is, is sinless himself, mm-hmm. and uh, so is his wife, and they are then the, uh, the true parents of all humankind and these marriages are actually to start this kind of this this get this kick the ball rolling of these sinless perfect children then they also drum up fundraising cool and stuff by selling they were the flower selling type people didn't they have all those little kind of yeah sending the hordes of people out there to make money in airports and such and, yeah. and, and selling the, the trinkets on the on the street corners the thing about the unification church is it is in itself I, I think not a terribly offensive religion. There's not. I mean, it's a cult of personality. There's all all the trappings of a, a cult as far as that goes, but it's not a terribly damaging group in a lot of ways. But because he was incredibly rich, he had a lot of political influence and well, was a darling. He, uh, he owned the Washington Times, Washington which is um, kind of the newspaper for. Um, Conservatives. He was a buddy of uh, Ronald Reagan's and George H. W. Bush. And George H. W. Bush. Um, he threw his political clout around a lot. 
the focus of the New York Times article was trying to get across how many of these different businesses he was involved mm-hmm. in, the numerous foundations that he funded, universities that he even bought. Uh, many sushi restaurants in the United States, which made me kind of sad. Yeah, well, they're, they're mainly their distribution them. networks. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a kind of a joke around that you couldn't get sushi on a Sunday in the United States because – you know, all the distributors were Moonies. Uh, Sun Young Moon <laughs> was also convicted. He spent 13 years in federal prison for tax evasion. That seems to be the one thing that they can get people on. Just yeah. like Al Capone. Uh, mm-hmm. There was also a uh, there was also a congressional. <laughs> There was also a congressional investigation into his ties with the South Korean government. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he was pu- uh, pushing money and using connections to try to get endorsements for a particular presidential candidate that he wanted. Part of uh, Moon's numerous, numerous charities, foundations, businesses, and everything else were to give him the appearance of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. You have somebody publicly making statements to the effect of, uh, I will go beyond the failure of Adam, the failure of Abraham, the failure of Moses, and John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, to create these perfect children. Well, you're going to need a little bit of positive PR spin when you're making big statements like that. Mm. And uh, yes, of course, when you're seen shaking hands with the likes of Gerald R. Ford, Mikhail Gorbachev, Jack Kemp, George Bush, uh, all of these things seem to kind of legitimize himself. And, and didn't he fairly recently at a, I believe it was a congressional prayer breakfast, crown yep. himself Messiah in front of a bunch of uh, awesome. United States congressmen? What I was, that's what I was just getting to. Oh, was okay. it a coronation on the agenda? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, March 23. Well, that's... That's, that's part of the part of the way these political figures defend themselves is to say, look, we were coming to this foundation, and if you look at the lists of these foundation names, mm-hmm. there's no way you could tell just by their names or right. by their activities that they're even Mooney related. And so some of them claim to have been kind of manipulated mm-hmm. into photo ops and these other things where they they went to these different conferences or banquets, not entirely knowing what they were getting into. And, yeah, a great example of this is uh, March 23, 2004. It was a Peace Awards banquet uh, held in Washington, D.C., and several members of, con- of Congress were there, and <laughs> Representative Danny Davis, an Illinois Democrat, walks out wearing white gloves and a pillow with two gold crowns, places them on uh, Moon and his wife, <laughs> yes. Moon stood up and declared that emperors, kings, and presidents had, quote, declared to all heaven and earth that Reverend Sun Mung Yoon Moon is none other than humanity's savior, Messiah, <laughs> awesome. returning lord, and true parent. Uh, this is on YouTube. And, that yeah. is an awkward... <laughs> Not just, oh, it gets even better than that. <laughs> Marx, Lenin, Hitler, and Stalin had all found strength in my teachings. Oh. In, in the spirit what? world, that is. After their death oh. in the spirit world. They'd found strength <laughs> in my teachings. In the spirit world, yeah. that's better. Mending their ways and being reborn as new persons. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so... Wait, wait, not, wait. not a few members of Congress... He did a post-mortem what? baptism on Hitler? <laughs> Even the Mormons won't do that. (laughs) Apparently, they're talking all the time in the spirit world. This is – did you ever hear about that editorial? This was – I think this was rather recent. 2006, the Unification Church placed an ad in various U.S. newspapers – 
that saying that there was this Christmas Day meeting in the spirit world. Uh, people who are there, be there or be square. Yeah, quite the list of names. Charge. Quite the list of names: Jesus, Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, Martin Luther, and John Harvard. Muhammad couldn't make it because it was a two-drink minimum. <laughs> Do they have uh, place yeah. at the table? I want to be and, uh, to sign over. You know, they had a bunch of stuff to talk about. Um, of course, let Lenin and Stalin called in from hell, uh, <laughs> saying, "We live in the bottom of hell here." That you know, so okay, they mm-hmm. wanted to get that Good. across, and they're unimaginable. Imaginable suffering and agony. Jesus had a, uh, a more positive spin on what was going on. Uh, he hailed Mr. Moon as the Messiah, proclaiming, quote, you are the second coming who inaugurated the completed testament age. And then Muhammad led everybody in three cheers of victory for Sun Young Moon. So this is a letter. <laughs> is this a this was a letter sent from heaven oh my to God. the Moonies. Um, and then uh, God, unfortunately, Yahweh wasn't there to comment, oh. but uh, he sent a, another letter on December 28th, a couple days later, saying okay. basically a memo saying, I second what Jesus said. Sorry, you I know, couldn't make it. Totally, totally, I totally third boom. what Jesus said. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, he was <laughs> busy with something else. It's funny. Like, it sounds like we're now making this shit up, but we're not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. What, what was great was the... All these newspapers published this thing. Yeah. It's um, unbelievable the amount of newspapers. The With Boston the Herald, label the Daily said, News of New this York. This is not satire. The Los Angeles Times. Two papers that didn't were the New York Times and the Portland Oregonian. The, the Oregonian, they actually got a quote from the editor there why he didn't publish it. And this is great. He says, look, if Reverend Moon had claimed that he was the Messiah, I would have to run the ad. But when he started quoting Jesus Christ and said that that Jesus Christ had said that he was the Messiah, I couldn't check the veracity of that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh, so oh. numbers started slipping in recent decades, and they've gone through a, a bunch of different name you changes. Had a conference call, and they could yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. how did Neil Armstrong get wrapped up with this? <laughs> And did you know, too, that since um, Reverend Moon has died, the Messiah is dead? Who's the next Messiah? Well, that's the thing. He's He was asked this. He was asked this back in 1997, and he said, I will continue to lead the church from the spirit world. <laughs> so apparently he realizes he's mortal and right. knew this day would come mm-hmm. and uh, and has kind of prepared a little spiritual excuse. My understanding, though, is that the the official messiah is now his son that is a, it's a dynastic messiism i did not hear north that. korea yeah well yeah exactly right so um hmm. interesting but uh what what a character sad to lose him uh, yeah, well, so soon. Quite an industrious quite an industrious person though when you look oh. at all these connections that he forged with yeah. political leaders and foundations and everything. If this guy was living in the first century, he would have created Been a world more than religion. Just a carpenter. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but w- one of the interesting things to come out of Moon's death is a number of editorials by psychologists who study cults. Mm-hmm. A number of them are trying to dispel the myth that, that, well, the myth in quotes, that the Moonies were this huge cult that were brainwashing millions of people. Uh, For one, it's really hard to get estimates on how many Moonies there actually were. They've claimed as many as 3 million followers. I can't imagine it's anywhere near that. 
the New York Times article put the figure only in the tens of thousands, quite uh, quite a bit short of three million. Yeah. Like we saw with the Mormon Church, um, when these churches decide themselves how they're going to count their membership, it's oftentimes really hard to uh, get a good figure on it. But nevertheless, many of these social psychologists are claiming that the Moonies were caught up in a lot of anti-cult hysteria, especially mm-hmm. back in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mostly take issue with a very pseudoscientific notion of brainwashing, that you can take intelligent, well-educated people and, you know, through the right methods of persuasion and manipulation that you can turn them into cult fanatics who are willing to kill themselves, kill others, or do anything for the leader, mm-hmm. that these psychologists are claiming that's that's an exaggeration. Uh, I've seen movies where the Koreans can do this. What about the Manchurian Candidate? Yeah, I love yeah, that yeah. movie. What about the Manchurian it Candidate? It was in a movie, so it's yeah. got to be right. Psychologists right? don't know squat. Uh, I'd like to quote here Ellen Barker uh, from The Guardian. She's basically arguing then that the other problem with labeling these groups cults is that one bad thing that a cult does then is thought to apply to every other cult. It's thought to be right. typical of They're all in Jim general. Jones. Yeah, we, we basically we see them all as this one unit if they mm-hmm. have that label cult attached. And so understandably then a lot of these uh, a lot of these researchers were trying to push the phrase uh, new religious movement instead of cult. Oh. Um, she says what was actually offered varied enormously. But the general public was largely unaware of the differences, informed as it was by a sensationalist media, themselves fanned by a burgeoning number of so-called anti-cult groups, which had started as gatherings of concerned relatives but developed into powerful lobbying groups that accumulated all the worrying stories about one movement uh, and then generalized these into into a conventional wisdom of what all cults do. And then she adds, forgetting that all of these activities can easily be found in traditional religions. Hmm. There's a, there's another one, too, by Philip Jenkins saying how we became obsessed with cults. And he's pointing out, you know, there's no such thing as brainwashing. If, if you want evidence of that, look at the terrible retention rates right. that these groups have. Y- yes, you have a lot of people if going Paul to these Haggis recruitment get conferences, uh, but 90% of them are uh, don't join mm-hmm. or – Within a year or two, you know, the defector numbers jump a huge amount. So brainwashing is not really what's going on here. There's no special magical set of uh, brainwashing tools that these cult leaders have found out. Or the most powerful like mechanisms that. that you have are, is just group allegiance. And a lot of these people mm-hmm. are, are seeking an additional, maybe their family lives are messed up already. They, they have friends. They do things. I mean, it's the same forces that are present in any group. Yeah. So I don't know even what a line is between a cult and, let's say, a Christian church that's like a small house church or something like that. What's the difference? Right. Yeah. Right. All your friends are in the group. And like maybe, Westboro Baptist Church. Is that a cult or is that? Yeah. It's not that you're worried right. that if you leave, they're going to assassinate you. It's just that you won't have any friends anymore. And what exactly. would you do with your you time and your, your entire circle. worldview is locked mm-hmm. up with that small group? That was the conclusion we came to in our cults episode. Right. We looked at some of the research, uh, some of the ideas about these supposed brainwashing techniques uh, and came to the conclusion that there really wasn't a lot of scientific support for it, that what goes on in these cults are not any different than normal normal group psychology going mm-hmm. on. If there is a different category it's a difference in degree, not in kind. Uh, for example, we looked at uh, the term that was being thrown around, uh, coercive persuasion. 
perhaps some groups do engage in this kind of coercive persuasion, which has elements like isolating people from their friends or family uh, for short amounts of time, guilt or humiliation being used against its members. But yeah, as we pointed out, that's kind of on a sliding scale. <laughs> that mm. that sort of thing. We, I think I used the example of my church youth group that I went to growing up, mm-hmm. these summer camps. Okay, physical exhaustion, <laughs> isolation from family and friends, right. uh, guilt and humiliation, of course, are telling us what sinners we are. I mean, this is – even in mainstream Protestant groups, this activity is going on. So I don't disagree with Eileen Barker <laughs> – in the claims that she's making, uh, pointing out that we forget that these activities could just as easily be found in traditional religions, mm-hmm. my point is just sort of, well, I don't care. That's part of why I'm against many traditional religious <laughs> exactly. setups, is that I do find, I do find this kind of uh, coercive nature of persuasion to be unsettling. Mm-hmm. The secular groups need punishment boxes, though. That's the part we should retain. Yes. If you want to start up your own secular group or a student group, punishment box. I'm building one at home. Well, in the cults episode, we, we came to the conclusion if there really was this difference between a cult and, uh, and a religion, it was only in the idea that cults a lot of times are so separate from the mainstream culture, they're so insular, that, that they do not respond to many of the cultural pressures to moderate some of their views mm. or behaviors or anything right. else like, like early that. Christianity. So, yeah, exactly. Which was certainly a cult. So if there's a defensible line that you can draw between religion, sect, and cult, it's probably just that, that they are, are uh, they are not yet mainstream. And many of those people were not mainstream to begin with. That's why they ended up there. And I'm actually, if you, I heard some interviews with some former unification members. And even if I recall, they had a anniversary of Jonestown thing, some former People's Temple members. Yeah. And a lot of them were like, clearly, you know, this, this wacko, the leader, that's why they left. But there's still in them, like, I, some of the idealism of the movements are still with these people mm-hmm. that they were like hmm. you know like you know, we believe that we could set up a utopia or that the, we our goals were pure that it's just they got perverted by these leaders or something like that like a lot of them were we i still think that mainstream materialistic values suck i still believe in you know socialism or whatever like that and they just got railroaded by more you know it got twisted by some of these leaders right I just think we should go take a podcast field trip and go see the master. <laughs> the master, what's that? It's the oh, new, what's that? It's what the new P.T. Anderson movie that's loosely about Scientology. They say it's not about Scientology. It's not about Scientology. It's just merely about a World War II a veteran who gets hooked up with a charismatic leader and his wife, <laughs> and, and then they develop a new uh, spiritual mind control method. And but yeah. it's not Scientology. No, no, not Scientology. Not at all. <laughs> um, there are others who are arguing in the other direction. The tolerance of cult leaders and the attempt to kind of soften the public image of these of these cults as not being as fanatical or frightening as we should think. Uh, one sociologist, Benjamin Bait Halami, he delivered a speech called Integrity and Suspicion in New Religion Religious Movement Research where he says one way you could look at it that look at this is that sociologists and psychologists are ju- just trying to be disciplined uh, in not making value judgments 
when examining and researching these different groups. You could look at it as a, as a kind of harmless commitment to objectivity and research, right? We're not going to call them cults. It's a value-laden term. We're going to call them new religious movements. In fact, there's even good statistics to show that people's attitudes on questionnaires on how should we deal with cults, should we investigate into them, should, should we uh, curb freedom of thought and that sort of thing in some of these policies, you know, their attitudes will radically change whether or not the group is described as a cult or mm. is described as a new religious movement. Mm-hmm. Be it Halami is saying that good impulse has gone too far. It's gone so far as advocacy where sometimes researchers are culpable in not seeing the threats of these groups until it's too late. Mm-hmm. He uses for his example the uh, the Om Shinriko case in Japan where uh, they were using sarin gas and right. uh, there were something like 24 murder victims over a stretch of a couple of years and poisonous and poison attacks in the subways and everything else. He was saying that a bunch of new uh, new religious movement researchers you know, flew to Japan in the early days of this case and were arguing this is probably just a few fanatics. Let's not go nuts on this mm. on this new religious movement. And, and then people died. Real culprits could have been found sooner had they not meddled in these uh, in the affairs of the of the police investigators in that case. And he goes on to show <laughs> this was part of the reason that got him in trouble for this speech was that he was sharing private correspondences that he had had with some of his fellow researchers. Basically outlining how, especially the unificationists, especially the Moonies, that several of these researchers were working with unificationists behind the scenes and several other new religious movements behind the scenes to try to get funding to start their own kind of research project. So the idea was, hey, look, you bankroll us, we'll be able to push research in these journals showing that you're not as dangerous groups as as the oh, wow. population at and large the had the money is to making do them out to be. Yeah, and he was uh, documenting in this some of the groups that were involved in this. While this gentleman does actually share some of the criticisms of the anti-cult movement, he's basically arguing that you know we, we shouldn't we shouldn't go too far the other side into advocacy and just assume that all these groups are benign. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have enough information to really form a judgment about this. You know, we know about the cult hysteria, the satanic panic, mm-hmm. and a lot of the a lot of the more pseudo scientific hysteria movements that formed around cults. And so, I agree. I'm likely to be skeptical of the anti cult movement in that way too. At the same time, it's undeniable that a lot of these groups are violent. But one point that I did take to heart that came out of this was he said, why do we give a kind of epistemological priority to the leaders of the cults instead of the defectors? Hmm. That the notion in, in new religious movement research is that defectors' words cannot be taken seriously because they were disillusioned with the group for some reason they'd have every bit of a vested interest in attacking it. Which is exactly it. what a lot of the critics say about us criticizing right. religion. Right. Well, he just turns that on his head and he says, you think these leaders don't have a vested right. interest right. in whitewashing their <laughs> group's beliefs or activities? <clears throat> I mean, as us who deal with apologetics... No, they have an invested interest. Yeah. Yes. We deal with apologetics on a daily basis. I mean, it's uh, you get quite used to 
the whitewash mm-hmm. and uh, and how ministers will represent their very best side and kind of sweep under the carpet some of their more abnormal practices or beliefs. So uh, that that definitely I took to heart. But we'll post links to all of those for people who are interested in that debate over new religious movements versus cults. Let's turn now to some God Things Like You. If you were around this summer, and I know a lot of you troll the social science research websites, as you should, um, you might have seen something. Actually, this came across the uh, radar of a lot of, um, or gaydar, of uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, human rights Oof. activists because it's rare that you have a people get all worked up about studies uh, in social sciences because it's boring and irrelevant. But there was a study that gathered a lot of attention this summer um, the lead author's last name is Regnerus, and so you, if you just Google that Regnerus and gay, you'll come up with the study that he did of uh, gay families, which garnered a lot of attention and hate mail for this guy because what the study purported to do was roll back basically a decade or two of, of other studies showing that um, previous work has shown that gay families were, if anything, you know, benign or even produced you know, healthy, well-functioning yeah, I know, kids. I know what the studies I'd heard before is that Which, it was either equivalent to um, hetero couples or, at, especially in cases of lesbian couples, that they actually were more successful in yes, the I think we, children right. they produced. We covered we this in a previous episode, yeah. yeah. If you want to go back, I don't know which number it was. But, um, but yeah, for, for a couple of decades at least, the, the, a lot of the studies that were done, uh, and if, you, if you're interested in reading reviews of this thing, there was of a well-known review by the authors were Stacey and Bib Lars, I think is how you pronounce it, back in 2001, where essentially they concluded that most of the research shows no differences between gay parents and straight parents in, right. the, in the children's outcomes. Mm-hmm. So things like kids' mental health, the kids' own uh, sexual orientation or behaviors. And like you mentioned, what they added was that some of the research actually started to move into territories of gay superiority, particularly right. for couples like uh, lesbian, long-term lesbian couples were shown to actually All have things like... All lesbian couples are long-term lesbian couples. Well, isn't that the joke that what's yes. the thing that two lesbians bring to the second date? A U-Haul. <laughs> uh, 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 don't, uh, yeah. So the, I'm just repeating what's... mail to I'm repeating. I didn't make that joke up. Yeah, because anyway, it's okay if you just repeat it. I, if you repeat it, I'm not responsible. But, but. Anyway, so the uh, that, that in many ways were superior uh, in the outcomes uh, in that they mm-hmm. had stable families. They tended to be, you know, uh, And that makes up parents. for your joke. Because, exactly. Yeah. So we can have stereotypes as long as they're good ones. Exactly. <laughs> so what, what Ragnaros' study, what made it kind of a slap in the face of a lot of this stuff was essentially the data – that he presented claimed to roll this back and sort of contradict all that and say, wait a minute, these previous studies were flawed. And then he will talk in a second about what, what he thinks are flawed. But also his data claimed to show that actually gay uh, children and gay families were inferior to two opposite sex On biological. And gays were involved, right? Well, that's the interpretation that's thing. The, yeah, well, he does say, I, I'm not saying <laughs> that <laughs> Look, homosexuals are responsible for this, and, but... 
I am saying it's correlated across the board with all <laughs> with all respect. these horrible things. Yeah. yeah. So I think he, even though his conclusions were appropriately moderated by those sorts of noises, like I'm not saying it's the gay, blah blah blah. There was a crap storm of the mm-hmm. rain down upon him and anyone who who posted or repeated his article saying, "How dare you? This guy's a homophobe. He is a you know right winger, whatever." And the, and some of his work actually in the social sciences of religion has been support typically used in conservative directions to say that religion is good, that conservative yeah. families are good, blah, blah, blah. We've seen Regnerus before on this show when we were talking about his study, uh, his article in Christianity Today where he was encouraging ah, young Christians to marry young. Oh. And, and the way he said that was that because they're gonna ha- since the rate of yeah. the marriage now they're is about 28, sex. 29 people get married yeah. in their late 20s and people are going to have sex, you might as well get married yeah. earlier so that you can have sex. And oh. at Re- Regnerus's argument, we were kind of stunned by his argument because he had this weird thing of being incredibly honest about what the social psych data was saying about divorce rates mm-hmm. in the Christian community and everything else. But then just his yeah, conclusion totally were just denying. But, but yeah. you know, this is God's way. And, yeah. you know, he went into all the data. Yeah, couples who marry young do tend to not have their finances sorted out. Getting married young correlates with divorce very strongly. But, you know, Jesus wants us to do this. He doesn't want people to have sex, so do it anyways. Right. This kind of fantastic ability to quote the good figures and then derive completely contrary conclusions and it's interesting to me too because if a if a good study came out showing that you know children of gay couples were less successful or had this and this problem i wouldn't want people to jump on it and say oh you're you're homophobes well if the study is actually good if the information is accurate then we need to address that the question to me then is why is this yeah. the case? And I would suggest social pressures and, you know, you, when you factor in that uh, there's people who are trying to ruin your parents' marriage, say that it's sinful and that sort of thing. Right. That you could be damaging you to children. You can't say it's intrinsic to homosexuality. Yeah. You have yeah. to take right. the culture into That's what into many of Regnerus's uh, opponents were pointing out, even his more liberal uh, – I, I mean his supporters, rather mm. – uh, a lot of his supporters, even liberal supporters, were saying, hey, look, you know, the, the one thing we should get clear is the fact that he's written articles for Christianity Today, the fact that he's a religious conservative and has made that known is not reason enough to discredit, that to throw hominem. out his, right. yeah. his data. Yeah. You have to so look at the data. And actually, if you do look at the data, you can draw a whole different set of conclusions than the ones that well, he drew from that study. Let's look at some of his critique of earlier studies because – Technically, he's correct. A lot of the stuff that's been done that shows the no difference things. First of all, a lot of the some of these date back into the 90s when when couples were just starting to have. I mean, there's always been gay parents. There's of always course. been people previously married to opposite sex partners who later say, "Hey, I think I'm gay," or get a divorce. So a lot of these families were not the same type that we see now, where there's a much more legitimate, yes, accepted. Some view who are actually right. legally, or married, legally married, or in some yeah. states. And so you look at um, a lot of the things that you had. First of all, small sample sizes, mm-hmm. which limits your ability to say these two groups are different. If I have, like, say, you know, 40 gay parents and 40 straight parents, and I say, look, there's not a lot of differences statistically, a lot of that might be because you don't have statistical power to detect a difference. That's one mm-hmm. point that he makes there, which is technically accurate. Small samples can't detect differences. But another one is that that um, the, a lot of these studies were... <clears throat> 
the way that they, uh, because the numbers were low in the general population, they use what's called snowball sampling, where they go in and get a case like, oh, you're gay parents, hey, here's some flyers to be in a research study, hand those to parents that you know, or they go into mm. a gay group or advertise on a, you know, a, a listserv or something like that. We're looking for parents who are gay who are raising right. kids. And then, so there's and tell your friends and neighbors and things. It's not a random sample. It's not yeah. a random sample. Right. So you accumulate cases that way that tend to be somewhat rare because you had to do it through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, as you might imagine, it's not since it's not a random sample. What you the type of families that you tend to get through that tend to be very uh, educated, white, upper middle class. That they're sort of volunteering things. to be a part of this study. They're they're showing an active uh, interest right. in this sort of. So thing. yeah. So who's not being picked up in those samples? It might be. The, and then here's what leads into his sample. If you look at the general population. Uh, uh, it's a little; those couples are a little less representative. Mm-hmm. So his critique of the earlier studies was that yes, of course, you find these wonderful parents who are gay who are producing these well-adjusted kids, but is it really uh, related to their orientation, or simply are you selecting the most motivated? You know, the, a lot of these people, right. for example, went to sperm donors or uh, in yeah. vitro fertilization to to have kids. That's not something again. That's because as we've pointed out, it's much harder for gay couples to have children. You don't <laughs> you get accuse, drunk and have you, you can accuse gays of a lot, but probably illegitimate children or accidental kids is, yeah. is not one of them. It's, it, it, it's much more rare in those instances. Yeah. So, I liked when Regner has pointed out for us that uh, homosexual. Uh, that the incidence of unplanned pregnancies amongst homosexual men is zero. That's <laughs> like, yes. Okay. okay. That's accurate. Great. That's totally accurate. Bob, I, I have something that we need to talk about. <laughs> Remember last week? Anyway, so the. Um, we so, don't know who the mother is. <laughs> so what Regners did was use an entirely different sampling method. His, uh, what he did was he used a population based sample where they get a couple thousand people together mm-hmm. and then uh, and then identified, and these are all different family types. To his, his base sort of uh, core comparison group was opposite sex parents who are. Have biological offspring, so the, and the are standard not n- nuclear family. Yes, yep. the standard thing, and then every other type. So adopted, single, divorced mo- mothers who are heterosexuals, mm-hmm. and then, and then what he asked was to get his sample of gay uh, of what he called gay parents. Is although what we're going to see is that's problematic. Is he asked the, the kids now who are now between eighteen and I think it was thirty something. Hmm. So they were oh. now you know adults, young adults. Um, had your parent, either parent, ever had a same-sex relationship during you know during their marriage? So basically, well, he asked the kid, he I asked mean. the kid to report on whether the parent had a same-sex relationship, and then if they said yes. <laughs> As if the kid necessarily knew that. So this could be anything this is so from weird. yeah. This could be anything from a long committed homosexual relationship to like you know to a senator mom was, a mom was flirting with one of her girlfriends and yeah. or something like this, just a homosexual mm. fling. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, and here I guess this is the crux of the issue with his study. What he did was essentially compare those parents or the, the kids there, their outcomes to all the other family types. And mm-hmm. as you might imagine, what he found was is that the the, the nuclear biological opposite sex parenting were superior on a variety of measures. They, the, and including it, and with the measures included things like, do you have a 
father and a mother who are married. <laughs> well, yes, you score a hundred points. Not only that, but like, but like mental health, substance abuse, sexual abuse, uh, their own relationships, unemployment, unemployment yeah. uh, and that you know that the and so what he claimed to show there is that his his take home message was hold on, it looks as if the way when you do things this way, gay families don't appear superior or even equivalent in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, like we said, he found that it wasn't uniquely bad. It was that single heterosexual mothers, for example, single moms were lower, or adopted kids, or di- all the because diff- mothers are not equipped to raise children on their own, or <laughs> well, because so there take- are many other factors at play. And the reason why this got a lot of play in the conservative press was because his take-home message was the best family structure to raise a kid is two opposite-sex parents with a biological offspring. And married. so that fits right in with so yeah, even married adopting parents. children is not. Well, see, but uh, they didn't play that part up as much. Yeah, they just no. said you could just as well take that from the data too. Is that mm-hmm. non-adoptive children? But yeah, they're not going to play that. No, but uh, you know, it's, that's uh, why we need abortion is because uh, is because adopted kids perform yeah. so much lower on these measures. I mean, you really can't put them up for adoption. The, clearly, the crux <laughs> of the issue that though is that's that. a legitimate pregnancy. Then you should get married <laughs> to the father. He, he, and he recognized, if you read into the discussion, he recognized that today's gay relationships tend to be much more planned, or like you said, in some yeah. cases even legitimately married in some states, and that they're more you know selective about things. But even deeper than that, though, the problem, the crux of the issue was that these were – this was an apples and oranges comparison because mm-hmm. he's comparing the structure of an opposite-sex traditional nuclear biological family with – a behavior that is the kids reported that their parent had at some point had a same-sex relationship. That's not a family structure. That's a behavior. Right. And yeah. so, really, what these uh, what the data do show is that kids of whatever orientation parents from a sort of broken home mm-hmm. or that had some failed relationship are inferior to kids raised with stable wow. parents. Right. That <laughs> would that would be like a parent's marriage broke apart because dad was having gay sex on the side and mom found out about it. Well, so and these were not stuck with a they weren't single even mom raised was, by these people. If you right. look oh, if you look at the numbers wow. of people that were uh, were how long then did your parent engage in this uh, same-sex relationship, he only had maybe half a dozen people where it extended into the year range. Well, because that's homosexuals for you, right? They just don't have so, those sustained relationships. Well, yeah. all so about. these were not people, kids raised in a gay family who grew up. These were kids raised in failed straight marriages uh-huh, that were raised uh-huh, and grew up. Uh-huh. And so... You could see there that basically with this different sampling method, you have different results. Now, he tried and, and he, he had tried no, to say this like, well, this is a flaw. I couldn't find that many people, but there you go. Yeah. But still, the, the this was a football. The study was a football that both sides used yeah. mm-hmm. to kick back and forth. Now, isn't it, I read somewhere that he had no appropriate measure for a heterosexual broken home. Like, there was no... Really? There was no measure of... Because there's a lot more of those than there are of anything else at this point. Well, that's why I'm asking. Well, he, yeah. he, had single, he had single moms. I don't think that he asked really about... In order to see what he also did was in order to beef up the numbers in what would be the gay family, I'm using air quotes here, group was that if there was more than one category that you fit in, let's say a divorced single mom who also engaged in a relationship to beef up the numbers, he shunted that person into the uh, gay family group if they just simply said if your parent has ever had a same-sex relationship. But one of his measures was intact. 
intact f- family. Yeah, the intact and, was the comparison. And, and group. yeah, and, and there was no there was no intact homosexual no. right. marriage group. So no, there wasn't yeah, enough people to do not that. Even a basis for a comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it really was essentially it was a comparison of the intact heterosexual couple uh, with people that have had parents that you know had a failed relationship maybe because they had a same sex affair or experience and then broke up so some are responding to this luke by saying that what this data really does show is the need for gay marriage the need for uh, legitimizing that, these marriages mm-hmm. so that these intact family structures can grow up do you think that's the other side punting the football, or do you think that that can be drawn well, from this data? I think many people, many fair-minded people say that this sort of puts the onus on, um, okay, let's get done trashing Ragnaros. This, the method right. doesn't show that gay families were inferior, but mm-hmm. what it does show is that stable families are good, and that if you are out there and you're sort of offended by this, or if you're a gay parent, the way to prove this sort of thing wrong is to have a stable family. Now the ball's in their court. Mm-hmm. Can gay, you know, if gay people have stable families, let's see what happens then. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And if they're unsure, that, that you could also think that's a fair conclusion. And though the data is not randomized, the data we do have on that is not sufficiently randomized. Uh, we nevertheless, the preliminary stuff suggests you can't. Well, yeah, and if and if all these Christians out there that are saying gays can't have a relationship because they're whatever promiscuous, it's deviant, the kids mm-hmm. will be made fun of. The burden of proof is on them to say then you should promote yeah. stable stability, however that is, the same sex, right. opposite sex. If you really think that kids are harmed by unstable relationships. Shut up about the orientation part yeah. and promote stable relationships. Right. Yeah, that seems like the the clearest message to get through. Like, I mean, if kids are better off with two parents, undeniable, right? And just to put that out there, single moms and single dads do an excellent job too. But there are more difficulties when you're doing it by yourself. Yeah, a little data, yeah, that's exactly it's just, it. A it's little so data clear. to show that intact families do better than single mothers, for example, well, is not should never be taken as a slight no, against no, single exactly. mothers. It's just to show, yeah, the reality of when you only have one. And that's the part I think right. that's a little disingenuous about Christian groups using this study yeah. because did they come out against the other findings that say that divorced straight mothers are inferior? No, they didn't mention that. Right. They didn't mention yeah. the adoption. Or Children, they didn't mention yeah. the, the uh, they were just saying, oh, look, gays, inferior, straights. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a Christian group going, well, clearly we shouldn't adopt children, bring these uh, poor heathen third world children into our Christian homes and make them better. Because this study says that, that well, they don't uh, turn out as well. They're going to enjoy a slightly higher level of abuse and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and yeah. then to his credit, though, Regner even admitted somewhere in his explanation that part of the reason that this sort of thing happened is that gays – Back when this generation in the 70s and 80s when these families were forming, a lot of these uh, marriages had affairs, same-sex affairs, mm-hmm. because these people felt that they didn't have because any options. Because there was no they acceptance were, they, of they had a, you know, to, yeah. to pass as a straight marriage, that sort of thing. And that I think that he, to his credit again, mentions at some point that you would have fewer of these now because many people don't feel as much pressure to be in a sham marriage. Right. They can actually have Although a legitimate... Although there's still plenty of, that's, plenty that's of those. That's what angers me, though, about all these, uh, a lot of these evangelical psychologists that we know, uh, like David Myers or mm-hmm. Justin and Barrett uh, Regnerus here is that okay yeah if you read the fine print you'll see them being honest and and sharing the details but that doesn't seem to matter when it comes to the headline 
Uh, on this yeah. issue, at least, they're still going to use the vague, and part of that's the press too. Conclusion. Right. I mean, to that's push. that's the way the it's press reports on on scientific studies. Part of it is, is the press, but I've read Myers and Barrett's book. Oh well, yeah, know, I, and, and you you can see them doing this sleight of hand too. I, I'm going to yeah. though on this point at least. I'm going to stick. I'm going to support David Myers because his book, uh, What God Has Joined Together: A Christian Case for Gay okay. Marriage, yeah. did build. A case that said marriage is good. We like marriage. It's it promotes healthy families, and therefore we should promote therefore, gay should, people yeah. getting married. He went to bat at least on that issue. Yes, I'll, right, right. I'll agree on that, and he does deserve credit for that. Um, speaking of homosexuality, on our shit list this week, not homosexuality, but a uh, <laughs> a, a press release from BibleStudySpace.com. Yes, here's the title, and this is pretty much all you need right here. LGBT domestic terrorist attacks on Christians. Is the worldwide Christian Holocaust coming to America? Oh my God! <laughs> yes. Apparently written after the guy, the gunman had shot up the security guard at the Family Research yeah. Council. Well, it was actually uh, yes, Floyd, oh, sure. Floyd Corkins, who yeah. actually was a who disagreed with the politics of Tony Perkins, as most rational people should. Although Floyd Corkins. Not a rational guy. Um, shot a security guard in it while holding a bag full of Chick Fil A sandwiches. <laughs> um, oh God! The guard the survived. Guard or him? Uh, he was uh, Floyd was carrying a bag of Chick Fil A sandwiches. He had come from the restaurant saying this is that he was pissed off because of Chick Fil A's support of anti-gay yes. marriage things, and then he went to the Family Research Council because he held them responsible for promoting the kind of hate speech. Which thing. is not an inaccurate connection. The problem I have is with him bringing a gun and shooting people. Yeah, yeah, I, I um, think we're all agreed on. So that. should yeah. we make should we <laughs> make Chick Fil A not so available to the public? <laughs> So he, yeah, he shot a security so, guard. He should do a Twinkie defense like Dan White did with Honey Milk and say, it's the fast food that made me crazy. Trans fats. Uh, uh. But this, uh, this Bible load. study space group um, uses this one instance, which is, it, it's a bad thing that happened. No one's arguing it, that. It would be like us saying that, okay, because there's an abortion, somebody shoots an abortion clinic doctor, that there is a worldwide Christian conspiracy to kill liberals. No, um, no, Jeremy, the word that the article uses that I back is holocaust. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it would yeah, not yeah. be <laughs> inaccurate to say that there are... Christian groups actively trying to prevent abortion doctors even killing them because that shooting, injuring, and killing them has happened multiple times. Well, yeah, the army of God. I mean, no question about that. But, anyways, let's just read part of this press release here. He says maybe the Floyd Corkins assassination attempt on Tony Perkins will wake up the Christian church in this nation. When will CNN, MSNBC, and other secular networks stop giving the LGBT leaders a platform to preach their hate speech and violence towards Christians? There has been thousands of threatening messages and acts of violence against Christians, all undocumented mm-hmm, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it's only a matter of time before another LGBT gay activist like Floyd Corkins sets out to shoot up a Chick-fil-A or a Christian church. Okay, Thanks did to not... the left-wing agenda of the White House, Democrats, CNN, MSNBC, and, and other, other secular, secular networks. This is my favorite quote from the article. Um, gay publications, gay newspapers, and gay bars are hotbeds of anti-Christian hate speech, and they encourage violence against Christians. Not a single example is offered yeah, about this. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah, all those gay bars where they're plotting violence against Christians. <sighs> 
Yes. Well, you know, it's that's they're that's doing the it with like secret code speak of that's like dances. That's the insidious and thing about the worldwide Christian Holocaust. <laughs> exactly. Is, uh, nobody can show where it's happening. And, and then that's just how dangerous it is. To prove how serious it is, too, they end by telling you to contact the FBI and including yeah. oh yeah. my God. the FBI's <laughs> Twitter, Twitter yeah. account, which is the best way to get a hold of the best way. Yeah, yeah, through Twitter. Um, it re- I mean, it, how deeply offensive is it to call a Christian holocaust? And clearly, there are places in the world where Christians are being persecuted well, let's, for let's their faith. A, we talked about it on this show. Let's not pretend that the, the, that the right has any um, shyness Scruples. about using that word. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's absolutely um, disgusting. And if you read this whole press release, it's amazing because it's uh, it, it it appears to be written by a high school student who doesn't understand what a question mark is. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of these sentences that actually did have a question mark shouldn't have yeah, the exactly. only question mark in the whole bit. <laughs> now, guys, you're just statement. taking cheap shots now at the grammar of people. <laughs> all right, yeah. all right. I, I prefer to go for bigger fish and it's just as one quick Holocaust than the way the Holocaust should be used when Mitt Romney was touring Poland and went to a Holocaust site and his was peppered with questions from the press because he wouldn't answer any questions and his press secretary said have some respect this is a holy site kiss my ass <laughs> to the press that's respect for a holocaust <laughs> oh dear heavens well let's uh, end with some polyatheism shall we Today in Polyatheism, we're taking a look at one of the great hero tales from Celtic mythology, specifically a Welsh tale, which means, above all else, I will not be able to pronounce a single name correctly. A lot of L's, a lot of K's and Y's. Yeah, I'm just saying, Welsh people, there are vowels other than W. And <laughs> and why not just include the letters that need to be pronounced in the word? That's Anyway, uh, the Anglo-Saxon hero- oppressive person. Yeah, right. Well, so maybe they'll think about it next time. Exactly. The hero it's because of they're tale. drunk when they're saying them, Dave. That's why the drunken Welsh just, guy needs a lot of those. It just blah, sounds blah, like blah, slurring. Blah. Uh, the hero Where of our is tale. Rage coming from. Generally, uh, a guy with a good head on his shoulders is Bendigidfran, or more easily, Bron the Blessed, or as it translates literally, the Blessed Raven. Bron, though High King of Britain, made his home in Harlech, which is in uh, northern Wales. The King of Ireland, Mafelwich, asked Bron for the hand of his sister, Bronwyn, in marriage. That's Bron's sister, not Mafelwich's sister. It's not one of those myths. Bron happily pimped out his sister for political purposes, knowing that her marriage to the King of Ireland would ensure an alliance between the two islands. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what traditional marriage is all about. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Bron and Bronwyn had a brother named Ethnison. F what? Ethnison. Ethnison, too. I never liked that guy. Uh, He was a bit more hot-headed and took offense because he hadn't been asked to give permission for the marriage. So Ethnison took his anger out on Mathelwich's horses and cut off their lips, ears, and tails. Jeez. Not the livestock, George. (laughs) Which is simply not cool. And at the time, it was pretty good cause for Mathelwich to go to war with Britain. So Bronn gave Mothelwich a cauldron as a peace offering. 
This wasn't just any cauldron, though. It was a magic cauldron. And giving it away turned out to be a huge mistake, not unlike Disney trying to adapt the book The Black Cauldron. No relation. Anyone remember The Black Cauldron? It is the one cartoon that Disney has actually disavowed. And that includes all the racist stuff from the uh, early days. You can't get a copy of The Black Cauldron. Not available on DVD, I'll tell you that much. Good book, though. Um, This cauldron could resurrect the dead, more or less. Any dead placed in the cauldron would be reborn the next day, all healed up, but lacking the ability to speak. Which really makes them ideal soldiers, because who needs an army that can talk back to you? Wait, this is Pet Cemetery. It's exactly Pet Cemetery, only with gingers rather than pets. Either way, they're soulless. So, (laughs) all was well between Britain and Ireland, until Mathewich, like many other traditional husbands, turned out to be a nasty, abusive asshole. Even after giving birth to a son, the heir to the Irish throne, Mathewich continued to beat his wife daily and locked her up. Somehow, Bronwyn managed to train a bird to carry a message to her brothers and let them know what was going on. Bronn and Afnesson leapt into action and led their forces across the water to Mathelwich's front door. Bronn, we should note, led the forces across the water on foot. See, he was a giant and could just walk across the sea like you or I would a wading pool. When the blessed giant and his army show up, the Irish very quickly offer a truce, building a lodge big enough even for Bronn to hang out in. It's a bit of a Celtic horse, though, because inside the lodge are a hundred bags, supposedly of flour, but actually containing Irish warriors. Luckily, Afnesson is suspicious, and he manages to smash the skulls of the hidden soldiers. I don't know if he just was trying to smash bags of flour, and it was a happy accident, or what. But Bronn manages to survive. Mathelwich is deposed, setting the stage for Bronwyn's son to take the throne. But once again, Afnesson screws the pooch by tossing the tot into a fire while everyone is celebrating the victory. Bronwyn dies of a broken heart, and any hope of a diplomatic resolution goes up in flames like so much barbecued toddler. There are two things the Irish will not take lying down. One is the outcome of any football match, and the other is someone tossing a baby into a fire. So the war is back on, and this time the Irish are kicking ass, thanks in no small part to the magic cauldron which resurrects their dead each night. Imagine an army of undead mute gingers versus an angry Welsh giant. Thanks for the nightmare. I'm still trying tonight. to wrap my head around Irish people not talking because that's, you know, <laughs> if you've ever been to a pub or had a pint of Guinness. Oh, stereotypes. The tide, and eat potatoes. The tide turns when Efnissen finally makes himself useful and hides amongst the Irish dead. He gets tossed into the cauldron and destroys it from the inside. Kind of like what every Republican is currently doing to the Republican Party. (laughs) Only F. Nissen intentionally tried to destroy it. Also like the Republican Party after the 2012 election, very few have escaped this unmitigated disaster unscathed. In fact, only seven Welsh soldiers and five pregnant Irish women have survived. Even Bron the Blessed is mortally wounded. He instructs his surviving men to decapitate him and bury his head in London. 
which they do, but only after partying with Bronze's severed and still animate giant head for seven years. Awesome. Well, seven years plus another 80 years where they simply lost track of the time because they're having so much fun gabbing with the Blessed Raven's head. What can I say? He was a really charming head. The decades just fly by when you're listening to a they, uh, they got head ahead of themselves. You know. uh, no, this is this is from Prometheus, where David's head is severed and he's still talking. I didn't see Prometheus because I have good taste in movies. No, um, <laughs> screw that film and <laughs> and the cruel. horse it rode in on. Well, horse. the head talked is what I'm saying. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. something like the world's first talking head, but I can't even get any of my lame jokes in with all of you guys. <laughs> all right, but <laughs> Uh, so eventually, uh, one of them opens a door, and they all remember how sad they should be and that they have a job to do. They finally buried the head in the White Mount of London, facing France, so as to ward off all those deadly invasions the French are known for <laughs> perpetrating. Legend has it, the Tower of London now stands at the site of Bronze Head's burial, and thus the Blessed Raven has been replaced by the actual ravens who populate the London Bridge. Mm. So there you have it. Bronn, the giant Welsh hero king, supportive brother, ass-kicker of the Irish, defender from French assailants, and just one more mythological life of the party worth not believing in. So that's going to do it for us today. Not all our shows can be fantastic. <laughs> Once in a while, Jeremy rises from his torpor like a drunken Irishman to give a quip right before he passes out again. That's right. <laughs> Just being true to my heritage, man. We are going to get so many angry letters from Irish people. And if there's ever a group of people I don't want to piss off, it's the Irish. Because they will fight you. Um, so anyway, in the meantime, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our blog at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook slash doubtcast. You can get into arguments with Justin there. He's very active on the uh, <laughs> on the Twitter. Um, and also our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash doubtcast as well. Um, and we will be back soon with the second part, uh, probably, with the second part of our developmental psych of religion series. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be back with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 